Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord. And others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. 6,768. That is the number of warships in the U.S. Navy in the waning days of the Second World War. 288 ships, that is the number of ships in the U.S. Navy in the opening days of 2013. 215 That is what a Secretary of Defense warns that the Navy will shrink to because of budget cuts from the so-called sequester. And the Navy hasn't had a Navy that small since 1915, when our warships still burned coal to get around. Obviously, times change, budget constraints change, but will more cuts now compromise the common defense? Or might we already have all of the defense we need? Well, it sounds like a debate, so let's have it. Yes, or no to this statement. Cutting the Pentagon's budget is a gift to our enemies. A debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. in partnership with the McCain Institute for International Leadership. I'm John Donvan. We have four superbly qualified debaters, two against two. They will argue for and against this motion. Our debate goes, as always, in three rounds, and then the audience votes to choose a winner, and only one side wins. Let's meet the team arguing for the motion. First, ladies and gentlemen, Thomas Donnelly. And Thomas Donnelly, you are co-director of the Marilyn Ware Center for Security Studies at the American Enterprise Institute. You actually took part in in an exercise, a kind of uh, game, where you were asked to rebalance the Defense Department's portfolio of weapons and capabilities on a reduced budget. And when you began your presentation, you said, all I can offer you are roads to failure. I think that makes me a realist, honestly. We face a pretty bleak road, particularly if we continue to cut as proposed under sequestration under the law. All right, and we'll hear that from your argument. Ladies and gentlemen, Thomas Donnelly. And Thomas, your partner tonight is? Uh, My partner is Andy Krepnevich, uh, probably much to his astonishment, a former teacher of mine, but uh, one of the most astute defense analysts whom I know. Ladies and gentlemen, Andrew Krepinevich. Andrew, you are also arguing for the motion, cutting the Pentagon's budget is a gift to our enemies. You are the president for the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments. You spent 21 years in the U.S. Army. And the journalist Tom Ricks once wrote of you, I will read anything by Andrew Krepinevich, the fine strategic thinker who bears a strong resemblance to Dwight Eisenhower around 1939. 
<laughs> is he talking looks or military mind? Well, uh, since Eisenhower retired as a five-star general and I retired as lieutenant colonel, I think he's probably going on looks. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Andrew Krapanevich. Our motion is cutting the Pentagon's budget is a gift to our enemies. Two debaters are arguing against this motion. First, ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome Benjamin Friedman. Ben, uh, you're a research fellow in defense and homeland security studies at the Cato Institute. You uh, would like us to have a lighter military footprint around the world. Uh, And while you don't like the method necessarily, you think sequestration can be a good thing. Does that mean you are the sequester's only friend in this town? No, I, I can't really uh, stand up for sequestration lonely as it is, but I, I think the law is okay, but it's a dumb way to cut the fence. Ladies and gentlemen, Ben Friedman. And Ben, your partner is? My partner is uh, Corey Shockey, who uh, you can't tell by looking at her, but she's actually older and wiser than I am. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome Corey Shockey. Corey, you are also arguing against this motion that cutting the Pentagon's budget is a gift to our enemies. You were... Director for Defense Strategy and Requirements on the National Security Council under President Bush. You were also, during the 2008 presidential campaign, a senior policy advisor to Senator McCain. Your sister, Christina, however, is communications director to First Lady Michelle Obama. So, if she were here, would you automatically get her vote or would you automatically not get her vote? I'd unquestionably get her vote, even if I had their side of the argument. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, Corey Shockey. So on to round one. Our motion is cutting the Pentagon's budget is a gift to our enemies. And up to speak first for the motion, Andrew Krapinevich, president of the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments. He has served in the Department of Defense's Office of Net Assessment and on the personal staff of three secretaries of defense. Ladies and gentlemen, Andrew Krapinevich. At the end of the Cold War 20 years ago, we were spending, on average, 6% of our GDP every year on our defenses, okay? In the span of 20 years, this year, we're down to 3% of our GDP being spent on defense. I don't think you can find another major part of the federal budget where you have this kind of cut. Point number two is if you look at the defense budget, uh, you see several, I think, important things. One is, uh, 40 years ago this year, we decided, we made a social choice uh, to adopt a volunteer military. And we never really fully paid the price of that choice until after 9-11, when we engaged in a protracted conflict in Afghanistan and then in Iraq. In order to recruit and retain sufficient numbers of service members to conduct those operations, we've had to increase personnel spending by over 50% after inflation since 9-11. On top of that, uh, the Obama administration has uh, set forth a a revised defense plan, uh, which looks to cut nearly half a trillion dollars out of our defenses over the next 10 years. What does that mean? That means in the coming years, we're going to see a lot less funding for training, a lot less funding for maintaining our equipment, and a lot less money for replacing old and worn-out equipment. I've been to this movie before. Uh, This is the equation for a hollow military. This is the equation for a military that gradually loses its effectiveness and capability. Now, how will our enemies react to this? Is this a gift to them? I don't know. I'm not uh, privy to their thoughts. What I can tell you uh, is that the silence is deafening. And as Napoleon once said, uh, when your enemy 
is in the middle of making a great mistake, uh, don't interrupt him. Some people will say, well, gee, you know, we're pulling out of, out of Afghanistan, we're out of Iraq, let's reduce defense spending. Well, first of all, uh, our operations in those conflicts were funded by something called OCO, the Overseas Contingency Operation Budget. And those budgets are coming down and will go down to zero. But the base defense budget, typically when you draw down that budget, uh, that is when the threat is declining. Uh, we're in a situation right now where the threat is not declining. We brought together four think tanks, from the moderate liberal to the moderate conservative, a few weeks ago to look at the sequestration cuts. And these are cuts, hey, let's cut another half trillion dollars out of defense over the next decade. Despite the fact that there's a fair part of the political spectrum that was covered, there were two, two conclusions that the four think tanks agreed upon. Uh, the first is that cuts of the magnitude that are discussed and, and put forth in, in sequestration uh, would be a, uh, a disaster in terms of our military readiness and capability. Second, a, a, a belief that the dangers to our security, uh, the dangers to our economic well-being are increasing over time. So to sum up, those who advocate further cuts to our defenses as a way to uh, put the fear of God into our enemies, kind of remind me of what the Duke of Wellington once said about his own troops. I don't know if they, they scare the enemy, but by God, these people scare the hell out of me. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew Krapinevich. Our motion is cutting the Pentagon's budget is a gift to our enemies. And here to speak against the motion, Benjamin Friedman. He is a research fellow in defense and homeland security studies at the Cato Institute. Ladies and gentlemen, Ben Friedman. If we cut the Pentagon budget uh, to zero, sure, that would be a gift. But uh, the cuts that are on offer in our political system are a different story. The president right now wants to spend roughly $550 billion under sequestration, under the cap that we have in place for this coming fiscal year. That would have to come down about $50 uh, billion. And over the decade, we'd spend uh, $4.8 uh, trillion on defense instead of $5.3 trillion. We'd still account for over 40% of global military spending and spend more than we did at most points during the Cold War in real terms. Um, so if that amount of spending is a gift to our enemies, it's sort of a, a crappy first night of Hanukkah type gift like sweat socks or toothpaste. <laughs> I, uh, I think our enemies are, are too far behind for uh, it to matter much. They're sort of small potatoes, historically speaking, especially when you consider our wealth, our technological prowess, and our geographic advantage. These oceans around us and our weak and uh, peaceful neighbors are... Our biggest threat right now, according to pretty much everyone, is a scattered and increasingly pathetic remnant of the al-Qaeda terrorist movement that has failed to do much since 2001 except scare us into terrorizing ourselves. Uh, and even if you don't buy that take, uh, you ought to recognize that aggressive counterterrorism operations with drones, with special operations forces, intelligence galore, uh, requires only a tiny fraction of our military budget. And our state enemies, North Korea, Iran, uh, Syria... There are brutal regimes that pose little threat here. They lack the capacity to conquer their neighbors. Now, China is a bigger issue. I'm sure we'll come up a bunch here. But they spend about a, a third of what we do on defense, on their military. And most of that goes to ground forces that are largely irrelevant to the naval and air war that we might have with them. More important, China is a trading partner, not really an enemy, that we have no good reason to threaten unless you're eager to, eager to fight a war over disputed Pacific rocks, which I'm not. 
Uh, I think we should hedge against uh, China's rise, not by surrounding it with uh, our forces, which likely encourages its military buildup, uh, but by staying rich and uh, avoiding debt. Um, I, think, I think the real question when it comes to military spending is what's best, not for our enemies or worse for our enemies, but what's best for us. And uh, I think what we want is the cheapest possible military that can defend our shores, that can keep trade routes open in times of duress. And I think uh, we can do that quite easily with, uh, with very little overseas military presence right now. What the other side wants from our military is global dominance, which I think is not really possible. Uh, they'll say that uh, current or greater spending is necessary to our military strategy, which is primacy, which is to be a sort of globe-girdling policeman, and that strategy is necessary to global stability. And I think both parts of that statement are wrong. Uh, first, we could do essentially what we do in the world now in terms of our alliances, naval patrols, bases, um, at a substantially cheaper cost. I think you could trim at least $50 billion off the defense budget and do all the stuff we do now. And I, I can't explain the details of how you get there, but a good place to start if you're interested is uh, Dr. Krabinovich's foreign affairs article from, I think it was February this year, that says, well, shift a bunch of money out of the Army uh, into the Navy. Second, um, global peace and uh, trade, I think, would be fine if we adopted a more restrained strategy, and we'd be safer for it by by staying out of avoidable trouble. And as for trade, uh, trade routes, uh, we don't really defend them now. There's very little military protection of them. Ben Friedman, uh, I'm sorry, your time is up. Okay. All right, uh, thanks, for, thanks very much. Ladies and gentlemen, Ben Friedman. I'm John Donvan, and this is Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on America's shores. Stay with us. And here's a reminder of what's going on. We are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, fighting it out over this motion, cutting the Pentagon's budget is a gift to our enemies. You have heard two of the opening statements, and now on to the third. Debating in support of the motion that cutting the Pentagon's budget is a gift to our enemies, Thomas Donnelly. He is co-director of the Marilyn Ware Center for Security Studies and resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Ladies and gentlemen, Tom Donnelly. The smartest soldier of all time said that everything in war is simple, but the simple things are difficult. And this debate is a perfect example of why that's true. We're really talking about three things and how they relate to one another. We talk about money and budgets, and you've already heard a fog of numbers being thrown out. It's a lot of money that we're talking about. But I would ask you to consider uh, defense spending in a different way as not just a cost proposition, but a value proposition. Are we getting a return on our investment that's worth it as, as taxpayers and Americans? I would say absolutely. There hasn't been a great power war since the end of World War II, and personally, I would like to keep it that way. That's something that I can't quite put a price tag on. And what we're spending now is certainly affordable. Second part is even more unpleasant, the idea that we have enemies in the world. It is a dangerous world. Ben sort of downplayed all the threats that are out there. Reasonable people can uh, differ over who's the biggest threat and what the size of the danger is. But again, do you want to take a risk with this? I would prefer to live in a world where we have fewer enemies and the ones that might be enemies don't want to mess with us. Uh, The final part of the proposition is whether it's a gift to our enemies or not. 
as Andy said, we don't know whether it's a gift, but it is already, we can tell, a dangerous temptation. As we have come home from Iraq and are about to depart from Afghanistan, we see in Syria a war that's metastasizing. Is that a gift to our enemies? I don't know. It's not a gift. Going to war is never a gift. World War II was a gift to nobody, but it was a necessary thing to do and a temptation to evil people in the world. And there are evil people in the world. I like it that we have allies. They provide the battlefield. You can't put a price tag on that. It's better to fight over there than it is here at home. So having America be powerful in the world, be engaged in the world, out there in a world, has created a world that's more prosperous, that's safer, and for Americans, possibly the most important point, is freer than it has ever been in human history. We should not give that up. You don't win prizes in war for being the guy who does it in the cheapest way. Vote for us. Thank you, Tom Donnelly. Our motion is cutting the Pentagon's budget is a gift to our enemies. And our final debater who will speak against the motion is Corey Shockey. She is a research fellow at the Hoover Institution. She was a senior foreign policy advisor to the McCain-Palin campaign and has served in the State Department and on the National Security Council. Ladies and gentlemen, Corey Shockey. First, as most of you probably know, 31 cents of every dollar the United States government spends, it borrows. We may only spend 3% of it on defense, but 31% of it we have to borrow. Our national debt, the extent to which our spending is outpacing our revenue, that's the gift to America's enemies. And the defense budget has doubled since 2001. The sequestration, the the means by which we are further reducing it, is damaging. But the reduction in the top line, the overall level of spending, is manageable while maintaining a strong national defense and while frightening our enemies. The United States constitutes our own defense budget is 40% of global defense spending. There are 21 aircraft carriers in the fleets of the world's navies. Eleven of those are in our Navy. American dominance in the military realm is overwhelming. Of all of the places you could cut spending, in fact, the margin for error in national defense is enormous. We can do things that other militaries cannot do. And that drives our enemies to radical asymmetric strategies. It drives them to terrorism. It drives them to cyber warfare because they know they couldn't actually fight the American army and defeat it. It drives them to strategies of trying to erode our national will to fight the war because if we fight it, we're going to win it. The American military is extraordinarily good at what it does. That does not mean that the money that we spend on our defense, we spend well. The Defense Department, in truth, actually doesn't know if we have enough money to spend on American defense because they actually cannot pass an audit that every American business has to pass. DOD told Congress they won't be able to pass an audit until 2017. Given that the budget has doubled in the last 10 years and DOD cannot account for the money, that suggests to me that there are reasonable places in the budget from which we could wring greater effectiveness in our spending. 
The Pentagon's determined we have 20% more bases and facilities than we need, and Congress will not permit them to close it. The Pentagon has tried to ramp down the expansion of the personnel accounts, military raises, housing funding, pensions, and Congress won't do it. So even the Pentagon understands there are resources to be saved here. And even within national security, there are things that need money even more than the American military. If you look at why we are not more decisively winning the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, the reason is we're underfunding diplomacy, development, other things we need to spend our money on. Thank you, Kari Shaki. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate in partnership with the McCain Institute for International Leadership, where our motion is cutting the Pentagon's budget is a gift to our enemies. We have two teams of two arguing over this motion, and now we move on to round two. The team arguing for the motion, Andrew Krepinevich and Tom Donnelly, have argued that budget cuts threaten to, to make a dangerous world even more dangerous, that a weaker U.S. military would encourage our adversaries and create for us a hollow military. They say that the peace and security that comes in three cents of the dollar is a bargain, considering what a peaceful world it has led to for so long in terms of wars among the great powers. The team arguing against the motion, Corey Shockey and Ben Friedman, say that the, the threat at this point is exaggerated. Number one, We are so dominant militarily. We have oceans protecting us, a technological advantage, and a dominance that makes it just too early to worry about a real threat to our existence. And they also point out that the cost of the military itself actually represents the real threat to our national security. I want to ask the team that's arguing for this motion that the cuts are a threat to our security and a gift to our enemies, to put to you the point that your opponent, Ben Friedman, has made, that your argument for a strong military is premised on a goal of global domination. He says that's really what your vision is. Is that accurate? Do you cop to that, Tom Donnelly? You know, dominance is a loaded term, no question. That's why he used it. Yeah, no. (laughs) (laughs) uh, I noted that. But I'll cop to it. It doesn't bother me if America is stronger than everybody else times two or three. America's role in the world, from my perspective, has been pretty positive. And the use of American military power has made a better world. And so I'd rather be dominant than weak. Ben, it was your point. Can you respond to Well, obviously that's a false dichotomy. My whole point is that we're incredibly strong now uh, vis-a-vis our enemy. So weakness is not something that's on the table in this debate. The uh, argument is, uh, they, they say, we need to try to have 10 times the power of our enemies and uh, basically guide history to be safe. And that's a massive over-definition of our safety. The United States is incredibly safe for natural geographic reasons because of our economy. And most of what we're doing, you know, a a few difference of uh, percentage points in the defense budget is is not going to make a difference. But if we really rethought our strategy, we could be a lot safer because we'd avoid conflicts that we get into. All right, let's get, we'll get on to that in a bit. I want to let Andrew Krepinevich respond. uh, Ben was kind enough to cite my foreign affairs article. Uh, In the article, uh, even absent the the sequestration cuts, uh, I I said we're going to have to really trim our sails. We're we're not going to be able to fight uh, or or deal with threats in two different regions, even though there are three regions in the world we consider to be vital interests. 
I think we're going to struggle just to maintain access to critical regions uh, where we have trading partners and, and resource requirements. Uh, we haven't figured out a way to deter cyber attacks, and the cyber threat is growing. Uh, we haven't figured out a way to protect our assets in space. And with the spread of robotics increasingly accessible even to non-state groups uh, who can threaten the enormous uh, energy infrastructure uh, that in military parlance is comprised mostly of soft targets. Let me bring that to Corey Shockey. The money argument, it sounds like everything that was just outlined is important and would cost a lot. Corey Shockey. Well, you know, we don't have to do things in the future the way we have done them in the past. And I think one of the important advantages of the American military is actually its adaptability and its innovation. The, our biggest advantage isn't our spending, it's the creativity in build a better mousetrap. We can drive innovation so that our enemies' advantages get matched up better against. One of the challenges that we have in the current defense budget is that the force structure doesn't match the strategy. Well, the, the problem... Andrew Kropinevich, go ahead. Uh, the, the, the problem is right now that, uh, you know, efficiencies is everybody's favorite solution. You know, we have efficiencies, magic happens, and, and all of a sudden we save all this money. Uh, I was talking to one, uh, in fact, it was Secretary Panetta, uh, and if, if you know him, you know he's very fond of colorful language, and I, I raised the issue of efficiencies, and he said, uh, that, that's a bunch of baloney, although he didn't use the word baloney. Yeah, this is a radio show, so <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you censored. And, you know, for those who say, well, we spend more than others, well, uh, as I mentioned earlier, we have a volunteer military. What kind of military do you think we have if we paid our, our soldiers, airmen, sailors, and Marines what the Pakistanis pay theirs or what the Russians pay theirs or what the Chinese pays theirs? As Tom said, uh, you know, do you want to wait till the, the enemy is at your shores and then start figuring out how to deal with the threat? Right, or do me, you want to work me, with allies to keep them at a distance? To the other side. A lot do of, you want to wait till the enemy is at your shores? And we get a lot of a straw men coming out now. Uh, you know, we fight them over here, fight them. I'm saying don't fight them. Let's have fewer wars. But um, I'm not a big efficiency guy. I basically agree with Panetta. But that's why I said, why don't we cut the size of the army? If we're not going to occupy a country, we can have a smaller ground force. That's not an efficiency. That's a strategic choice. That's what I'm talking about more strategic choices. Tom Donnelly, Tom Donnelly, is it accurate what, what, what Ben Friedman just said, that you also want to nope. cut the size of the no, army? I, I mean, I think Ben laid it out very well. Okay, the efficient, I, I, I it's not an efficiency. It's a choice, a choice to have less power and to withdraw. All right. Can I take Landed that yeah, very well. Is it, is, it, is, it, is it an issue of having less power? Is, le, is it okay to be less powerful, Corey Shockey? Um, I'm not in favor of that, as a matter of fact. I agree with Tom on that, but it seems to me that um, maintaining American power in the international order is more affordable than our colleagues across the aisle suggest it is. Take the Army. The size of the Army in the 1990s, before September 11th, was 490,000 soldiers. That was when you still had the planning construct that said we had to be able to fight two nearly simultaneous wars. It was before you had the revolution in communications and precision and battlefield awareness that has made American forces so much more effective than they were. And yet, the size the Army says it needs is 490,000, the exact same as in 1990. The threats are different. The requirements are different. We need to find new ways to do stuff. The answer shouldn't be the exact same as it was in the 1990s. Tom Donnelly and then Ben Friedman. Tom Donnelly. Well, this is, is extraordinarily reminiscent. I mean, this is the kind of talk we heard out of Donald Rumsfeld before 9-11. 490,000 was too small. We proved that by being unable to do Iraq and Afghanistan properly at the same time. So I don't think that was a good experience. Uh, and I don't want to expect 
that the world is going to be technologically transformed and that the art of war is going to be fundamentally different than it's ever been in human history. That seems like a bit of a long shot. Uh, numbers matter, and we have just proved that in spades over the last decade. Meaning what? There are some things that you cannot do with technology, and we have actually you know, fought irregular wars and counterinsurgencies in the most technologically sophisticated way ever. But I don't think the result was satisfactory. I question for this side, unless you want to respond. Uh, we are only at the dawn of sequestration. Uh, the Air Force is cutting back on, on training. The Army's cutting back on training. The Air Force can't replace its aging aircraft, in part because we screwed up over the last decade or so in terms of the procurement approach. Uh, but again, that's poor excuse for compromising our security and punishing our service members. Uh, so, yeah, were mistakes made? Certainly, they were. Uh, you know, does, does that mean we give up on our security because uh, we, we didn't get it right, or does that mean we ignore what's going on now? Uh, do you want to respond, Ben? Well, Go let ahead. me just say, the sequestration. We had one kind of sequestration in fiscal year 2013, which said no matter what happens with the budget, we cut across the board, we cut everything equally, and that wasn't quite as severe as the services made it out to be, but it was dumb, and I'm against it. We're against it. But going forward, what we have are budget caps, and if they get under the cap, they can do whatever they want. So they don't have to do all those foolish things with cutting back on training in 14, 15, 16, 17, as long as they get under the cap. They can make choices. But, so sequestration yeah. in 13 was dumb. Going forward, as long as they get under the cap, it's okay. I'm, what I'm trying to figure out is what you all disagree on. Um, <laughs> because I know you do. I know you do, and I think it goes to this issue of a weaker U.S. military is a temptation, not just for China, but, but for who knows, to, to do things that right now they're just not going to bother doing. It's also some freedom for our allies to not be militarized and to dampen down those ambitions. So what, what, about, what about that whole point of our enemy's perception of us being not dominant? Tom Donnelly. What I see is people feeling for openings and weak spots. We see that very much in Syria and Iraq. The war has spread to western Iraq, uh, northern Jordan, et cetera, et cetera. We see that in the Pacific, in the South China Sea, where the Chinese, even without an aircraft carrier, are nudging at what Ben calls the various rocks in the South China Sea, but things that really matter to our allies. People are our treaty allies, like the Filipinos. And what we see is people feeling for how far they can go in the absence of American military presence. Okay, let me take that to the other side. Very specifically stated that the perception that our commitment to uh, strong defense may be wavering, already resulting in people putting out feelers to see what they can get away with. Sounds very logical. I want to put that to I Corey disagree. Shockey. Why? Corey Shockey. Because enemies always probe what, for your weaknesses. That's what enemies do. The Iranians aren't newly racing for a nuclear weapon. They've been doing it since before we started cutting defense spending. The Chinese but have been the logic rising of that since is before. That they're going to race even faster if they think that we're getting, if our resolve is wavering. Whether we have eight carrier battle groups or nine, I actually don't think it's going to make that much difference to the Chinese calculation about whether they want a Chinese dream that is their dominance of the Pacific. We need a comprehensive sense of our strength. And right now, we are stronger in our military capabilities than we are in our trade agreements, than we are in our diplomacy, than we are in our development. We ought to hedge up what our actual weaknesses are, not continue to reinforce our strength. Andrew Karpinevich. Yeah, we are being confronted... Uh, by some strategic choices, uh, to use Ben's term. Uh, there are three regions of the world uh, that we rely on for trade and for resources. We're part of the global economy. 
and we rely on the global commons, space, cyberspace, the sea, and the undersea to link us to those parts of the world. In the Far East, the Chinese for over a decade now have been building up their military capabilities to try and push us out of the region. We're going to have to do something to maintain stability in that region. Iran, a nuclear-armed Iran, uh, do you think they're more or less likely uh, to support Hezbollah or to support uh, Assad in Syria or to try and undermine the Gulf uh, monarchies and disrupt the the flow of energy? Andrew, let me let uh, Ben Friedman respond. What China does vis-a-vis its territorial claims, this is shocking, is not completely driven by conversations in Washington or small differences in our defense spending from year to year. What Iran does in terms of disrupting energy flows is not driven by small differences in the U.S. defense budget. They might have some minor preference, but it really doesn't matter. If there's been an indication that the United States is not as up for war as it was a while ago, it wasn't because we're spending a little less on the military. It's because we had bad wars that made the public less enthusiastic to go, which is a good thing. Uh, And maybe it cut back a little credibility, but if, if you want lots of credibility to have wars, then don't have dumb ones all the time. I'm John Donvan, and you're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on America's shores. Stay with us. I'm John Donvan, moderator of Intelligence Squared U.S. Join us online at iq2us.org to vote on the motion and keep the debate going. I want to remind you that we are in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan, your moderator. We have four debaters, two teams of two, debating this motion. Cutting the Pentagon's budget is a gift to our enemies. Andrew Krepinevich. Uh, well, I, I would just say that uh, the, the Far East example, uh, the, the purpose uh, of trying to maintain a stable military balance in the region, uh, the purpose is to avoid war, not to fight war. Uh, you can get into a war because of the perception that you're too weak uh, to defend yourselves or that you're irresolute. Uh, and cutting a trillion dollars additionally out of uh, defense over the next decade uh, certainly, uh, I think, sends that message as we withdraw from parts of the world. Yeah, I just want to put to this. I mean, history, 20th century has got some great examples of weakness being perceived as an opportunity for aggression. That's the point the other side just made. Again, there's a logic to it, and there's historical precedent for it. It's not a ridiculous claim. Go ahead, Ben Friedman. Weakness can be provocative, but, you know, a lot of us kept going to history class the day after we talked about Munich and World War II, and strength can also be uh, provocative. States balance power. States design, build military capability in response, not necessarily their weakness, but to being threatened by other states. States' decisions to build nukes, and to build armies are often driven by threats, including the ones that the United States poses to their uh, borders. So uh, it's not so simple that our weakness uh, encourages buildups. And I, I really think we ought to talk more carefully about what scenario would take place absent a larger U.S. commitment to Asia that's so nefarious. I think, yeah, the Philippines and Taiwan and Japan might spend a little more on defense and, and uh, create a stronger alliance among them, but that's not a bad thing necessarily. Uh, we, can, we can live with other states having geopolitical responsibilities. Let's take some questions, sir, right down the front. Hi, my name is Bernie Lee. I'm a grad student at Seton Hall University um, studying diplomacy. My question is, uh, first to start off, the Carter Center for Peace has said that since World War II, of the 50 major armed conflicts, they've all been about religion or ethnic conflict, and they've all been pretty much within borders. So, and the actual occurrence of violence has gone down, and the number of people being killed has gone down. So can the military be changed 
to be more of our, dip, our diplomatic arm? Or could that money be better spent to diplomats, commerce, and improving trade? One of the things that has happened in the la- with the wars of the last 12 years is that things that have traditionally been diplomatic and development functions have migrated into military space. And that's because we don't train our diplomats and our development people to the same level of professional expertise that we train our military. And we need to do that. That's actually a better place to spend our money. It matters to see diplomats doing diplomatic work. And we could spend our money that way. We just choose not to. Tom Donnelly. The the original question posited a correlation between less war and less dying in recent years. That correlates really strongly with the rise of American power. Uh, Again, that's what I was talking about originally. Uh, This has produced great benefits, not only to us, but to humanity. And Corey will remember this from her own time in the White House. The problem with uh, diplomats is that if you want to send them to Afghanistan, at least until recent years, they could say no. So we need all the tools in our kit bag. Okay, one more round well, they, on the I spend mean, Look, the, the, uh, what Tom just said ignores a vast social science liter- literature on the causes of the long peace. This idea that peace in the world, this massive decline in violence, which you referred to, which is not talked about enough. Everyone should read uh, Steve Pinker's book about this. Civil wars are in massive decline. Coups are in massive decline. Genocide has been going away. Your chances as a human of being killed in political violence have descended massively since World War II, and we don't talk about that. That's not due to the benevolence of the United States of America, I don't think. It has to do with the spread of liberalism, maybe, the spread of capitalism, and the experience of wars which cause societies to learn. And again, this isn't just me talking. This is most of the p- people who study this for a living. But aren't your this idea that it's all up to us opponent, is Aren't your opponents arguing that, in fact, the dom- mil- American military dominance is what created the conditions? I'm arguing for- against that right now. I'm saying that there's all these other factors uh, that are that are doing the work. Uh, no, no, play- no, but, but, but I think their point is that, those, that the American military dominance enabled those other factors well, that did all the work. Well, if you think it's just pure magic and it does everything in the world, then it, it's hard to defeat that proposition. But, uh, you know, look, there, there are parts of the world where the American military is not uh, very present, and we see, I think, a lot of the same results there, absent that, okay? Uh, it's, it's not a, a controversial sentiment that violence is massively declining. Andrew Krepinevich. Uh, I would like to think that diplomacy could solve all our problems. We wouldn't need militaries or that it's the global economy, stupid. If if we all just sit down and shut up, we're going to get rich. Fact of the matter is, in the absence of a stabilizing military force, uh, you tend to get into trouble. Uh, Look at the period from 1815 to 1914. The end of the Napoleonic Wars, Britain emerges as the world's dominant power, and the Pax Britannica exists for a century. Uh, Until the time that Britain's power began to wane, they began to cut back on their defenses. They began to expand their social welfare programs, for better or worse. And Germany decided that they could win a a war quickly, uh, that they could uh, defeat the Allies quickly. And what you ended up with is is World War I. Again, it wasn't because the British were too strong uh, that Germany decided to go to war. Uh, It was was because uh, they thought they had an opportunity to advance their aims at the expense of others. Sir. Thank you for this wonderful debate. By the way, I'm from South Korea. My name is Zaydak Jo. And I want to clearly state that my opinion has nothing to do with my government's opinion. <laughs> so my question... Uh, Same for these people. 
So I do believe that the United States has risen to the top of the world because it was economically stronger than any other nations at that point, at that time. But now, remaining militarily strong but economically weak, how can it, how can it maintain its position of the leader of the world? Tom Donnelly. Uh, again, uh, we have to keep things in perspective as, as all that I would add to that. We're not suffering from uh, the historian Paul Kennedy called imperial overstretch. We're suffering from things like entitlement overstretch. The money that we're spending that's impoverishing us is not going, for the most part, to, to buy military power. It's going to buy other things that the government does, uh, like provide social services. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing or not, people can reasonably disagree, but that's where the money's going. And if we want to reform uh, the federal government's books and to boost economic productivity, um, we can't do it by cutting the defense budget. We have to do it in other ways. This might be the last question, so make it a killer. Thank you. Um, my name is Michelle Dykeman. My question is um, really that the argument against has always been predicated on that we have this huge gap in our technical uh, capabilities over our enemies, but yet I've seen how China and Russia are stealing our intellectual property and using that to make uh, huge advances in their capabilities. So how can you argue by cutting the defense budget that we're suddenly going to be able to maintain our dominance when our enemies are using our technology and our technical development against us? Boy, that was a well-framed question. Yeah, it was a great question. <laughs> Tori Shockey. <laughs> Because I don't think our spending is the metric by which you should judge our innovation, our capacity to adapt to things. Um, you're exactly right. The protection of intellectual property is actually probably the most important thing the American government should be negotiating in our trade treaties because that is the engine of our economy. We build better mousetraps. And so I guess I am less concerned than you are because I'm pretty highly confident that we will continue to be an engine of innovation, of new ideas, and that having them steal the design for the original iPod is a dangerous thing, but it's a lot less dangerous when we go on to the iPod 7. And that That's concludes round two of this debate. Here's where we are. We are about to hear brief closing statements from each debater in turn. Remember, you voted before the debate. We're going to have you vote again immediately afterwards. And the team that has moved its numbers the most in percentage point terms will be declared our winner. Our motion is, cutting the Pentagon's budget is a gift to our enemies. Here to summarize her position against this motion, Corey Shockey, a research fellow at the Hoover Institute. So spending is an input measure. It's one thing you do to create an outcome that you want. And to argue that constraining one element of why the United States is so dominant and so powerful and such a force for good in the world, that constraining that one element will in fact be a gift to our enemies 
dramatically understates all the other things that go into America being a dominant power. The innovation that you talked about, the economic strength that you talked about, the extent to which who we are and what we are willing to fight for in the world reshapes other people's sense of their possibilities and their future. There are a lot of reasons the United States is powerful and admired and feared in the world. And defense spending, a small cut on the margin of that, is actually not going to have a major perturbation of effect on it. In order to accept our opponent's proposition, you would have to believe that a small change at the margin of a very large defense budget of a very good military would in fact have a major influence on the calculations of America's enemies in the world. Ben and I are trying to argue that it's a more complicated calculation than that. And you can accept many of the very good arguments that Andy and Tom Corey Shockey, I'm sorry, your time is up. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, Corey Shockey. The motion is cutting the Pentagon's budget as a gift to our enemies. And here to summarize his position in support of this motion, Thomas Donnelly. He's co-director of the Marilyn Ware Center for Security Studies at the American Enterprise Institute. Ladies and gentlemen, Thomas Donnelly. Corey keeps talking about Americans building a better mousetrap. The world that we have built over the last seven decades is a really good mousetrap. It's a complex mousetrap, as as Corey suggested. There are lots of things that go into making the liberal peace. But it's not a liberal peace that invented itself. The Europeans didn't, after five centuries of slaughtering one another and slaughtering the rest of the peoples in the world, decide, get all together and say, you know, I think we should cut this out. Neither did the imperial Japanese. They were defeated in war by the United States. And because of that, they've become liberal democracies, and pretty peaceful ones, too. So I don't know what the marginal difference will be, but it's not an experiment that I want to make. We see what's happening in Syria today. We see the Chinese messing about in the South China Sea. Are they coming to our shores tomorrow? No. But let's not let it come to that point. We don't want to know where the last margin of safety is. It's better to have more margins of safety than less, and that's really what this proposition comes down to. Thank you, Thomas Donnelly. Our motion is cutting the Pentagon's budget is a gift to our enemies. And here to summarize his argument against this motion, Benjamin Friedman, a research fellow at the Cato Institute. Well, uh, my argument is, is uh, it has two parts. Number one, uh, we can do a lot Uh, We can save a lot of money while doing all the things we do in the world. If you think we're the agents of uh, history and everything in the world is great because of us, fine. Go listen to some of the recommendations out there on how to cut the defense budget by 50 or 60 billion, and you can do it, okay? Uh, You can cut the defense budget and still have all these alliances. My own view is these alliances and a lot of stuff we're doing in the world are actually bad for our security, so we'd be even better off if we could get out of the business of trying to run everyone else's security for them. It's a disservice to history to say that there's only one factor that matters, which is whether or not there's a hegemon that's trying to manage international affairs. There's a variety of reasons, changes in the international system that encourage peace, absent the benevolence of the United States of America. 
Um, so uh, I think what we have today is a luxury budget. It's not a defense budget. Uh, it protects our safety uh, in the same way a, a billionaire's restaurant choices uh, prevent his starvation. Uh, there's a lot of room... There's a lot of room in there for uh, us to uh, be safe and uh, cut. And in the long term, by inducing some choices that we've avoided uh, in the defense budget, uh, they might make us reconsider uh, some policies that actually erode our security and get us into trouble. Uh, And that's why uh, cutting the defense budget is not a gift to our enemies. Thank you. Benjamin Friedman. Our motion is cutting the Pentagon's budget is a gift to our enemies. And here to summarize his position in support of this motion, Andrew Krapinevich, president of the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments. Uh, One way to think about your vote is uh, if Vladimir Putin were here tonight or the senior generals of the PLA or the Ayatollah Khamenei, uh, how would they be voting, do you think? The... uh, The issue we debate here tonight is is very real uh, for me. Uh, For 25 years, I wore the uniform of a soldier. And uh, in the 1973 Middle East War, we were one order short of arming nuclear warheads. Uh, But we were trained, we were equipped, we were ready. Two years later, in 1975, I was stationed along the demilitarized zone in Korea uh, when the North Koreans were digging tunnels underneath us Uh, and trying to intercept the resupply ships we were sending out to some of the islands off the coast of South Korea. Uh, But we had confidence in our equipment. Uh, We had well-trained troops. Uh, We weren't looking forward to a scrape, uh, but we were ready. Only two years later, uh, after the the results of Watergate and Vietnam and inflation and oil shocks really hit home, I was in a unit uh, where we couldn't train Uh, where troops were hiding toilet paper because we couldn't get toilet paper for our troops, Uh, where some of my best soldiers uh, were leaving the Army because they had no faith uh, that the the American people uh, were willing to provide what was necessary for us to be a ready unit. We recovered, but it was a very expensive proposition in the early 1980s to put Humpty Dumpty back together again after the military was broken. Uh, We were lucky. I wouldn't want to risk our security or our economic well-being on luck, and certainly not the lives of our young men and women in uniform. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew Krepinevich. And that concludes our closing statements. And now it's time to see which side you feel has argued the best. You voted before the debate. We're going to have you vote again now. And the team that has moved its numbers the most in percentage point terms will be declared our winner. Uh, Thank you again to the McCain Institute team. We really, really enjoyed partnering with you on this. Uh, It's been a terrific uh, partnership. Um, This was our 75th debate since uh, Bob Rosencrantz brought Intelligence Squared uh, to the United States, and we are happy to be sharing this milestone with everybody here. I now have the final results. You have voted twice, once before the debate, and once again afterwards after hearing all of the arguments. Here is the result. The motion, cutting the Pentagon's budget, is a gift to our enemies. Before the debate and polling the live audience, 22% of you agreed with the motion, 57% were against, and 21% 
51% were undecided. Those are the first results. Remember now, the team, after you voted the second time, the team that has changed the most numbers in percentage point terms is declared our winner. On to the second vote. Cutting the Pentagon's budget is a gift to our enemies. The team arguing for the motion in the second vote went from 22% to 29%. They picked up seven percentage points. That is the number to beat, seven percentage points. Now, the team against the motion in the first vote was 57%. The second vote, 65%. That is eight percentage points. It's enough to win, just barely. The team arguing against the motion that cutting the Pentagon's budget is a gift to our enemies has been declared our winner. Uh, Congratulations to them. And thank you from me, John Donvan. We'll see you next time. I'm John Donvan, and this is Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on America's shores. Dana Wolf is the executive producer. Maureen McMurray and Rob Christensen are the radio producers. Damon Whittemore is the audio engineer. Chris Kamakawa is researcher. And I'm your host, John Donvan. For more information or to purchase tickets to future events, visit www.iq2us.org. Intelligence Squared U.S. is supported by the Rosencrantz Foundation and distributed by NPR.